welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Welcome to IOM3 Investigates. I'm Rupal Mehta, editor of the Institute's member magazines Materials World and Clay Technology, and today I'm hosting a podcast on why we need more geologists, earth scientists and ground engineers to tackle the challenges society faces. Our guests today are Lucy Crane, a geologist who currently works as environmental, social, governance and sustainability manager for UK mining and exploration company Cornish Lithium Limited. Ian McKenney, an experienced ground engineer who currently works as tender desk manager for UK and Ireland at BAM Group and part of IOM3's ground engineering group. Ben Lepley, a geologist working in the ESG department of SRK Consulting and a member of the IOM3 Earth Science Group. So welcome to you all. Thank you for joining me. It's great to have you all kind of involved in this discussion and to bring a number of diverse perspectives on this topic. It'd be great if you could start off by telling us more about what you do and how your careers have evolved to where you are today. If we could kick off with Lucy, please. Yes, absolutely. Hi, Rupal. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me on today. It's really exciting to be talking to you all about this. So my name's Lucy Crane. I'm the ESG and Sustainability Manager at Cornish Lithium, but I'm actually a geologist by training. So I did earth sciences at university and decided that I wanted to do something that used my skills on a kind of practical level. So I ended up going to the Campbell School of Mines and doing a master's in mining geology straight after my undergraduate degree. And then was lucky enough to get a job as an exploration geologist with a company that was exploring the base metal projects across various parts of Africa. So I was lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time hiking around with my rock hammer, collecting rock samples, so really early stage exploration in Morocco, also in Ethiopia as well. Spent, you know, did my time on drill rigs, logging core, and various things happened. And I set up as a consultant for a couple of years. And five years ago, joined a brand new company called Cornish Lithium, who were going to start looking for lithium down in Cornwall. I was the first geologist on the team back then. And it's been amazing to be involved in the company as it's grown. So our founder and CEO, Jeremy Rathall, had a vision of seeing whether we could extract lithium from geothermal waters down here in southwest West England, which seemed a bit crazy at the time. Um, but we've now got a team of I think we're on over 65 people now. It's growing really rapidly. We're looking at the potential to extract lithium from these geothermal waters, but also from the granite rock itself in the St. Austral region of Cornwall. And my roles evolved from being the geologist on the team to when I came back from maternity leave at the start of this year, I'm now the ESG and sustainability manager. And I suppose what that translates to as to what we do day to day, we're looking to develop these projects in the best way possible, whether that's environmentally or socially. And so the ESG team's role is helping us to design the projects in that best possible way. Thanks, Lucy. Um, We'll definitely pick up on the work that you're doing at Cornish Lithium and why that's important um, for the energy transition later. Um, Moving on to yourself, Ian. Yes, uh, nice to be here as well. Uh, I'm Ian McKechnie. Um, I'm currently the tender desk manager for the UK and Ireland Uh, working with and challenging the managing directors and senior tender teams from across the four main UK and Ireland businesses within the Royal BAM Group. Ultimately, uh, I advise the executive board on live tenders that each part of the business wants to submit uh, on if they are in keeping with our corporate goals and requirements for approval. Uh, And I also have responsibilities to the Netherlands where BAM is ultimately based. I'm fortunate I guess in this role to see the diversity and scale of works that the company is involved with and how they help improve the everyday lives of the public. Um, Examples range from enabling the transfer, I guess, of renewable energy 
to the national grid from on and offshore sources, uh, to cutting journey times with new or upgraded rail and road links, uh, including tunnels and bridges, to creating new high quality office and retail space for work and recreation. So it's really broad, interesting um, stuff. Uh, I started off, however, my professional life as a geotechnical engineer, logging rock cores and soil samples, writing GI reports, um, ground investigation reports. I also stress tested uh, rock anchors, set out infill drilling patterns, calculated grout takes and remediated mine shafts across the UK. Uh, I then moved into estimating and bid management for uh, a bit of the business called BAM Riches before moving up uh, to my current role uh, at group level within you know, some 15 years after leaving uni um, with a degree, same as Lucy actually, in, in earth science. So that's that's my background. Great, thank you. Moving on to yourself then. Yeah, hi everyone and nice to be here as well. Um, so I work for SRK Consulting. We're a, a mining consultancy predominantly uh, across the world. I'm based in Cardiff in the UK, but I'm from Essex originally, so I'm an Essex boy. Um, but I went to Cardiff University and uh, basically never left. And I studied geology as well. Um, it was a, originally a three-year degree, uh, and I opted for, for an additional year in the, the, the undergrad master's. Uh, and then I got a job with SRK as a resource geologist. So this is looking at um, geological modelling, um, 3D modelling of 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 the the ground underneath our feet, specific to mineral deposits. Um, and as part of those, the early stage of my career, I did a lot of work on site, similar to these other guys, doing ground um, investigation type work, uh, sitting on drill rigs, um, doing sampling programs, and then taking that data into the computer modeling space, creating beautiful looking, uh, if not accurate uh, models of, of the subsurface and um, creating resource estimates from it. And so I did that for a number of years, 12 years or so. And then I migrated into the ESG space, similar to similar to Lucy. So that's me. Um, thanks for that really interesting introduction. What struck me is the breadth of the work that you do. What, in terms of the projects that you've all worked on in the past, how how do you feel that translates into kind of impact on society in, in, in terms of whether it's the minerals that you're extracting or the big infrastructure projects that you might have been involved in, um, Ian? It'd be great to get a bit more information about that, those areas. I mean, the company I work for uh, is a civil engineering, is a tier one civil engineering contractor. So they, they contribute in a large part, if you like, to the built environment all around us. Um, now, as a as a ground engineer, uh, I worked within the, the the kind of the smaller specialist ground engineering department of that company. So, a lot of the work that um, I would have done in my early career, and, and geologists and geotechnical engineers and the like do at the moment, is never actually seen or or really recognised by the public because um, it's at the very very outset of all of these major projects. Um, and then, of course, what is eventually then constructed or built is what is seen. So whether that's a railway or a road or a bridge or a nuclear station, a pumped storage hydro plant, whatever it happens to be, ground engineers will have been involved in all of those things at the very outset. Um, now, whether that's doing a ground investigation to help inform the design or you know, whether it's uh, involved in tunnelling or holding back really large excavations which are subsequently then built in and, and covered over and what have you a lot of the work that um, ground engineers do um, is not seen um, it enables the work that is seen by the public but generally speaking you know it's, it's hidden and i think maybe that we'll come on to it later i think but you know perhaps that that doesn't help necessarily the, the awareness of ground engineering as a as a profession because the public generally don't see our ever results if you like um i'll pick up there then i think um we're almost the opposite in terms of uh mining in that it is seen and what is seen is not liked um by a lot of people uh and because mining has had a, a very destructive past and and some parts of the world mining is still very uh destructive and environmentally and socially damaging 
so what's not seen is is all the positive side of things so um there's not enough examples in the in the public space about um the good work that is going on but but in terms of the projects that, that i've worked on personally you know, i do a lot of work in africa and um and, uh, eastern europe and you know some of these some of these projects like ian's we do we go and do some exploration in the field um and nothing comes of them and there's there's some statistic out there about i think it's specific to gold mining uh where something like a thousand exploration licenses are taking out and of those 1000 uh maybe 10 will advance to um, a feasibility study um, level uh, of detailed study and then maybe only one out of a thousand of those permits will actually become an operating mine for example so you can imagine the the number of projects that never get developed but have a lot of geologists who are the first ones um, on the ground in most of these places we're 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 the ones sniffing around looking at the rocks and um and uh, actually having a lot of um, community engagement right at the beginning so yeah there's there's the negative side of things um and then there's the unseen side of things and what we're we're missing is the the positive um side of things so uh what do you think lucy yeah all very true and you know the phrase that we talk about a lot when we're talking about the mining industry the public perception and this kind of disconnect between all these products that we're using in our daily lives and where they actually come from so is you know if something hasn't been grown then it's been mined and actually a lot of the time if you're growing something you're also often using fertilizers that have been mined um and there really is this disconnect in society i think between people having a potentially negative perception of the extractive industries yet still using all of the products of those extractive industries and you know this energy transition that we're going through at the moment where we want to electrify and move to energy that's produced from renewable sources that we store in batteries that's going to be hugely mineral intensive i think there's a statistic by the the iea the international energy agency that to produce the same amount of power from a gas-fired power plant from renewable energy sources on average or from a you know onshore wind source you need nine times the mineral inputs that you do um, and it's because we've got to build these technologies that allow us to capture energy and we have to store it but geoscience i think is such an important skill set so those of us who've been trained in geoscience we understand how the earth's processes and systems work so that means that if we want to understand what past climate change looks like so that we can apply what's happened and make predictions about what's happening to the planet now as it's warming so quickly you know geoscientists geochemists paleoclimatologists paleoclimatologists these are all the people who have skills to help us understand what that's going to look like and then there's so many transferable skills as well I used to work in the oil and gas industry for example a lot of that knowledge can be transferred to working in the geothermal industry or to looking at opportunities for carbon capture and storage or for looking at safe disposal sites for radioactive waste. I think when you start to scratch the surface, like, like Ian said, so much of the work that geoscientists do by their very nature, it's underneath the ground. And so a lot of people just don't see it and don't notice it. Whereas it's so important, it literally, in my opinion, underpins society as we know it and the world that we live in. And so we really do need to try and encourage the next generation of people to come in and actually study this, join us, because there's a whole host of jobs and really exciting career paths where you can have a really positive impact on delivering net zero and climate change through studying geoscience. I think people kind of see geoscience as oil and gas and the extractive industries and oh gosh, isn't it bad? Whereas actually there's so many more things that we can do with these skills. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, uh, Lucy. That, that is my understanding anyway, is that uh, you know, oil and gas is what people immediately think of when you start talking about geology and, and what have you like that. But, you know, <clears throat> let's just take Crossrail, for example, which opened, fully opened just recently. Crossrail was a, a huge undertaking, civil engineering undertaking. But again, to help enable that uh, to happen, it was ground engineers who um, went in first, if you like. So... Crossrail, as everybody knows, goes through central London, one side to the other. Um, you know, one example of where ground engineers uh, did a super job was in the compensation grouting. So as you can imagine, the number of grade one listed buildings that are in central London uh, is quite large uh, and includes parliament and all the rest of it. Um, 
if any of those were damaged or whatever by a, a project, there would be rightly, you know, uproar from the public. You know, um, compensation grouting went ahead of the, the tunnel boring machines. So as when the tunnel was bored, nothing moved. So what did the public see? Nothing, because nothing happened. But of course, <laughs> that was only down to ground engineers. Uh, if ground engineers had not done that and Big Ben started wobbling and all the rest of it, the public would have been up in arms. So it's just another example of, you know, work that's done in the background, so to speak, that uh, enables lots of fabulous projects, um, but, you know, are not really, the public are not aware that it's ground engineers that have helped enable all that. Touching on what you've all talked about and kind of the breadth, really, and the impact that, that these skills have, how do you see that evolving as we seek to make an energy transition? Will your skills need to evolve or is it more of the same but applied to different environments, different projects? I think uh, from the kind of geotechnical engineering, civil engineering side of things, ground engineers are already and have been for decades, I guess, involved in renewables. Um, you know, back in the 1960s, or, or I think a lot of the pump storage hydro schemes were first uh, scoped out and, and, and built for that matter. Uh, and that's come to the fore again. Now there are many of these pumped storage hydro schemes that are in the planning at the moment, um, some of which are starting to move through to construction. Uh, they all require tunnels and caverns and lots of other interesting excavations within the mountains themselves for gear and uh, pipes and all the rest of it. Those are all designed and then uh, you know, excavated, constructed, made safe by uh, ground engineering professionals using information that was already obtained by geologists doing surveys and logging core and making sure that the, you know, if it was a fault zone or whatever, um, to make sure the design was robust and safe. So, you know, that is ongoing now and has been the case for, for a long, long time. And, and so those skills are there and uh, are required. Um, and will be required more going forward as well. Um, you know, nuclear stations at the moment, uh, Hinkley being one, uh, I guess, that's it's most advanced in terms of construction. You know, these have got huge, apart from the, the tunnels and what have you for, for cooling water and all the rest, you know, these have got huge excavations to, to set buildings and, and reactors and plant in and all the rest of it. Um, in effect, you're making huge man-made cliffs, which are all held back safely and securely by anchors and uh, sprayed concrete and all sorts of other techniques and methods by ground engineers. So wind farm sites, to jump onto wind farms very briefly, you know, where they are located and sited uh, is, is informed a great deal by ground investigations. You know, you don't want to be building them on, on you know, unsuitable grounds and, and having to get haul roads and whatever to end for the construction. So, you know, th these skills, these people are already out there doing this and, and it's only going to, the demand for the, the, these skill sets are only going to increase I think is the point uh, over the next years and decades to come. And then if we look at a critical minerals perspective, we actually need to build low carbon technologies, whether that's wind turbines, whether that's solar panels, whether that's lithium ion battery packs for electric vehicles, whether it's batteries to store things on a grid scale, they are all made out of stuff and that stuff is generally mined. And there's a huge role to play for the mining industry as, the, as we go through this energy transition to actually provide the materials that we can build all of these low carbon technologies from. And I think it's quite often left out of conversations around the energy transition and providing renewable energy sources is actually where are we gonna get all of those raw materials from? And if we're gonna be building these low carbon technologies because we want to stop burning fossil fuels and combat climate change, then we really need to make sure that we're extracting them in the most responsible way possible. And there's huge advances that have been made in the mining industry over the last couple of decades. And I think, yes, people tend to only hear about the bad news stories rather than the good news stories, but new technology policies, procedures, frameworks that are in place internationally and on a country level, mean that a lot of these projects now have to be so much more responsible and minimise their environmental impact. Think about what's going to happen when the mine closes, provide benefit to local communities around where these projects are, as well as providing materials that are going to actually allow us to have this low carbon energy transition. And then in parallel, things such as geothermal energy are huge opportunities. And down here in Southwest England, I think we might come on to this in a bit more detail 
in a bit, but we've got potential for geothermal energy here in Cornwall. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to add that um, the role of a geologist and geoscience geoscientists in, in particular, when I look at university courses and I go into universities and, 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 and give, give lectures occasionally, is that the fundamentals are the same. You need to understand you know, the principles. What is changing is some of the, the technology they use. There's, there's a lot more emphasis on, on software, um, less emphasis on field work. And, and some people say, you know, that's, that's something that's going to be a big problem in the future is that we, we don't have um, as many field work applied geologists. Uh, but on the other side of the coin, it's making it more accessible to more people. Um, so that opens up a you know a whole different uh, set of people that have access to to a, a geoscience type degree because beforehand it would have been seen you can only do it if you love being outdoors and clambering up and down rocks. So that that is I, I see that as a as a benefit, but um, that's not to say that the field skills aren't really important. But all the particularly the software skills are very transferable um, across disciplines. So from uh, you know, geotechnical engineering uh, through to uh, hydrogeology, uh, through to resource geology and mining. All these guys use very similar kind of techniques and use the same principles of, of uh, you know, geological fundamentals, really, uh, to understand relationships, understand what happens to fault zones, to understand, you know, how mineralization has formed, etc. So th those skills aren't going aren't gonna, to uh, change fundamentally. What I have seen as a geologist, and part of the reason I'm I moved across the ESG team is that there's so much more of a focus on the geoscientists who are in, on the ground first to be really conversant in environmental and social issues and to be able to communicate with the with the communities that they're going into and understand things from their perspective. So something that is, I think, changing in the, the education of, of geoscientists and particularly when you get to a workplace is that that kind of shift from just being a technical person and looking at the rocks and looking how it works in 3d etc to actually thinking okay how does this apply to the communities in which they're based and the environment and the biodiversity and the water etc so i think that's something that has changed and will continue to to gather more pace thanks i mean that that brings me on to actually i was i was going to ask lucy and ben um because you work in this space what, what do you mean by esg exactly uh i'll let I'll, yeah okay i can go well yeah so environmental social and governance three very separate very broad topics <laughs> and um when i moved across here i'll admit i didn't really know the the uh the sum of all those parts um but looking at environment is 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 one of the more obvious ones if you're an earth scientist or a geoscientist is the you know how a project or a company interacts with its surrounding environment be that soil air water ecosystems uh flora and fauna etc um, and pollution things like that and the social side of things is more the human rights issues um the community involvement um, training at work, um, those kind of things. And then uh, the governance is how, how a project or a company is run and how it's governed um, and the taxation schemes and the uh, thinking about the director's duties, those kind of things. Um, and beforehand, professionals in this area relating to mining were, were probably referred to as either environment, environmental and social specialists or sustainability uh, specialists. And, and the word sustainability is often used instead of ESG, and, and I noticed that uh, Lucy has both of those things in her her title. So maybe you can understand. You can you can tell us about the difference between those two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose one way of looking at it is what makes up a mine. Well, obviously you've got to have the right rocks. So you've got to have those rocks that have got ore that's concentrated enough to make it economically viable to extract. But once you've got a mineral deposit, that's just the start. There are so many other things that have to align to actually make it possible to extract those minerals. So you've got to map out what your environmental 
impact might be? How can you minimize those environmental risks as far as possible? And those ones that you can't, how can you mitigate them to an acceptable level? Whether that's acceptable to the standards of the local communities, the international community, the people who are financing you. So that's part of the reason that we've got these, there are so many frameworks and standards and initiatives in place that have been put in place by people such as the World Bank, IFC, you've got the equator principles, there are so many different frameworks and initiatives and they're all designed to try and ensure that projects are getting up to a certain standard. So you've got your mineral resource, you need to do the environmental side of things as Ben has just said, the same on the social side of things. You talk about a thing called social license to operate in the mining industry and it's kind of intangible you can't really measure it, but you know when you have it and you know when you don't. And it's when you've got support from the local communities where your project is who are going to be impacted by it. So do they support the project? Do they see the benefit of it to them? Um, or are they totally against it and they're going to make your life really difficult? And then governance, again, is really important. So, yeah, I think ESG is the latest buzzword for sustainability. And prior to that, when people started to think about what are the environmental impacts of what they're doing, it used to perhaps be just the environment when you added in social and actually now it's trying to take a more holistic look at what makes a project responsible and how do you actually deliver that and how can you measure it and report on it so that the people who are funding you or the governments where you're working can have that transparent overview of how you're operating. I think that's a really key word just to pick up and that is responsible. I, I've, I hear the word sustainable mining and it's a bit of an oxymoron in terms of you know mining or a mining project can that ever be sustainable some people would say yes some people say no but anyway if you say responsible mining it makes a lot more sense to me in that you, you are the steward of that land you're going to act responsibly and then you're going to uh, the project is then going to move on to a different land use the phrase responsible mining is is uh, is better in my opinion kind of building on from that then Lucy and Ben, you both work with the Critical Minerals Association, which, like IM3, is highlighting the importance of these minerals for the energy transition. And I know, Lucy, you touched on that earlier. Um, and the government's obviously recently published a critical mineral strategy. How fundamental, and you've, you've covered this, but I guess it would be great to kind of expand on that, of how fundamental geologists in particular are to the sustainability of our critical mineral supply? Well, I think we've kind of got a two-pronged approach. So if we talk about critical mineral supply for the UK, there's some stuff that we've got onshore here that we need to investigate, but the UK is also the kind of global hub of mining finance. And there are projects run by companies headquartered in the UK all across the world. And like we were saying a moment ago, everything really starts with the geology and the rocks are where the rocks are. You can't set, decide that actually you want your copper mine to be in this exact location. You've got to go to where the rocks host that amount of copper and host it in an economically viable way. So your geologists really are the first people who are going to find these critical minerals deposits for us. But as Ben alluded to earlier, and Ian's touched on it as well, just that kind of technical geology understanding isn't quite enough these days. You're often, as a geologist, the first person on the ground at a new project. So you've got to understand how to talk to local communities about what you're doing, whether that's ground investigations for Crossrail or whether it's looking for copper up in the Andean Mountains. And knowing how to communicate what you're doing helps set local expectations that actually, if you're just looking at a really early stage, it's very unlikely you're going to find anything. And you also need to have a holistic view of, okay, the rocks are really important. Everything is driven by an understanding of the subsurface. But actually, how can we integrate data science into the exploration that we're doing to minimize our impact of what we need to do on the ground to find stuff? How can we work with satellite imagery, use AI and machine learning to vector in on potential targets? How can we build in circular economy design and principles when we're looking at developing our projects? So whether that means designing our projects to minimize waste that we're producing as far as possible, which has economic reasons as well as environmental reasons, but also can we reprocess old mine tailings, for example, to give us some of the minerals that we need? And actually, how does that tie into this much bigger piece around recycling in the urban mine, as some people call it? 
And then in addition to that, geologists really, I think it's this feeling of understanding how earth systems work in this lofty idea as geologists kind of acting as stewards of the earth. You know, I think we've got such an important role to play in helping to deliver the solutions to climate change because we understand how these earth system processes integrate with each other. You know, we've got evidence of what past climate change looked like and so the impact that might have on communities and ecosystems today as well. I've rattled on enough, so I'll hand over to Ben or Ian. And like you say, Lucy, it's as a, a geoscience as geoscientist, you get to, to look at chemistry, biology, physics, uh, and some of the humanities as well. And it's a really multidisciplinary subject in itself, I think, and does mean that you get quite a, quite a good understanding of uh, the whole Earth system. And you can apply that not just to what is in the ground, but then, you know, why is it there? Uh, what are the analogues elsewhere? In moving on to ground engineering, and you obviously talked a lot about the different projects, um, the kind of importance and how it's often a hidden piece of the, the puzzle when it comes to major infrastructure projects. For those that aren't aware, what exactly is ground engineering and, and why is it so important? That's a good question. Um, I could give you, I'll give you, I'll give you the uh, Sunday name, shall we say, the Sunday description uh, for ground engineering, which uh, is an understanding, I guess, of geological structures, materials, and processes combined with a systematic application of scientific and engineering techniques to, to produce practical solutions, you know, to, to ground-related issues uh, for the benefit of society. So really, you know, in essence, it encompasses a wide range of activities from site investigation, any number of temporary works, as well as permanent works, but basically all of which enable construction. Um, that 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 is in essence what ground engineering is for. Everything you see in the built environment has uh, an element of ground um, ground engineering to it, whether it's you know the foundations for a building or the lining of a tunnel or or anything like that. So so really, in a nutshell, that's what ground engineering is. Um, and having having ground engineers work on uh, large infrastructure projects is is important for a number of reasons. Not only because to make them technically sound and safe for the, the end user, but also uh, to, to ensure, you know, in the practical terms that projects are delivered on time and budget. You know, if, you, if you've got a really detailed ground investigation for toxic, when you're looking to build a new road or a motorway or, or whatever, uh, the GI information can inform a, a change of route alignment. You know, it, it can allow you to avoid troublesome areas uh, and, and go through better areas. You know, you may need less uh, sub-base, you may need less uh, or smaller pile length, et cetera, et cetera, which will reduce the overall cost for toxic of going th than perhaps going through a, a looser or softer area of ground, which would require a lot more engineering to make it suitable. Um, so it's really being smart with how you use data and information and, and ensuring that you get good quality information up front to allow decisions to be made. I mean, that's really what it's all about. It's decision making um, or enabling good decision making with sound data. Thank you. So we've, we've kind of set the stall here of why these subjects are so important in terms of the impact that they have on society. So the flip side to that is, is we've certainly within the magazine had many articles lamenting the decline of geology and earth science subjects in school and higher education. And obviously the question is why, when it's clearly so important. Um, before we kind of delve into that, it'd be really interesting kind of very briefly to understand how all of you individually became interested in, in the ground beneath us, so to speak, and, and how you navigated your way into your respective fields. Sure, I mean, for me, I, I suspect my route into this uh subject if you like is not dissimilar to many others in that uh, at school it was actually geography uh, that I really enjoyed. Um, geology was not taught, uh, it wasn't a subject, uh, it wasn't even an option uh, and generally across Scottish secondary education uh, it is not an option. Um, so my, my initial interest was in physical geography and uh, it wasn't really until I got to university uh, that I kind of you know, found out about geology and earth science and what have you and took an interest in it. Um, 
and then the, you know once I started to look into the kind of the planetary processes, you know, the old tectonic plates and all that kind of good stuff, uh, that really caught my interest. And then from there, it was just wanting to find out a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. And that that's how it started for me. So um, I'd be loath to say I stumbled into it, um, but I probably stumbled into it uh, at university. <laughs> Uh, from a, from an initial interest in physical geography because that was the only thing that was available at high school. I have to say I'm very similar to Ian. Yeah. I really enjoy physical geography. I wasn't really interested in the human side of things back at school. We all, all we learned about was tourism, if I remember. And I also really liked science. And so when it came to looking to go to university, when I decided that that was something that I wanted to do, I went to all of the geography open days because that's what I knew about. And it was at one of those geography open days that there was a geology section. I thought, hold on a minute, that's kind of physical geography, cool field trips and science. And that is literally as much thought as I put into it. And yeah, was lucky enough that I actually ended up doing earth sciences and got to specialize and throughout that realized that, you know, the mining industry was a thing as well. So I definitely stumbled into the mining industry. Um, yeah, I think I think I'm yeah. much the same, Lucy, because chemistry was my thing. You know, I, I was chemistry was what I was best at. Chemistry is what I really yeah. enjoyed, uh, along with geography. And then, of course, got to university and realized that you can combine chemistry and, ge uh, well, and bits of physical geography, if you like, and, and earth science, you know, became, oh, there we are. That's an interesting one. I'll look into that a bit more. So, yeah. Science, science and geography, same as you, is, is yeah. what I wanted. And I think the only time I'd heard of geology, you hear people talk about paleontology. They used to be broth from friends, who's a paleontologist. And um, you just kind of heard about people sniffing around rocks. And Don't forget Bruce Willis it. and Deep Impact. <laughs> <laughs> but none of it really linked into something being futuristic or you know, part of combating climate change and all of these things, it's so pervasive. The skills of geoscientists are so pervasive, like we said, either through finding the materials of everything that we use or allowing us to build the environment that we live in. And so that's just not recognised, I think, in young people. I think a lot of people aren't engaged with geology and geoscience purely because they don't know about it. It's not that people are actively against it. A lot of people just don't know about it. And it really highlights how important physical geography is and actually linking these skills to the current curriculum and what kids learn in school. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I I was lucky enough that I have a very inspirational physical geography teacher, Miss Noble. Hello. Uh, and she happened to do geology at university herself and was very keen to teach it. And so she ran essentially in her own time um, the geology as level and then a level uh, so we were really lucky i mean from essex you know we're, we were probably one of the only schools in the whole of essex to to offer geology as a as a standalone subject um and out of the bunch of eight of us or something that did it nearly nearly all of them went on to do geology at university uh it was it was it was that inspirational teacher and i think that's quite a common theme across um when i've spoken to a lot of geoscientists about this is there's there's always some nutter or some really inspirational teacher along the way who got you into rocks somehow and that has just kick-started kick your enthusiasm. Thank you. I mean, what's interesting is listening to all of you that is the commonality of, of how these subjects kind of sit within the broader sciences, within geography, within environmental science, yet it doesn't seem to be well signposted. And that's the biggest challenge that the profile just isn't there. How do you think these subject areas could be better signposted in the... Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think this UK critical mineral strategy that was released at the end of July is the, you know, it highlighted that the talent pipeline or the lack of a talent pipeline is going to be one of the big challenges in actually delivering net zero for the UK. And so I think off the back of that, that's an excuse for us to be able to talk to government and try and get more visibility to the skill set that the industry is going to need into schools. From conversations that we've had with teachers, whether that's through the critical minerals associations or just through our work at the companies where we are, you know, the curriculum is so jam packed. They really don't have capacity to add in 
geology for most schools and there's also not the expertise within teachers for it so if we can find a really easy way of signposting that when you're teaching about this in a chemistry lesson actually you know these minerals come from mining or this is you know this process that we're looking at in chemistry that's how you extract copper whatever it is so we're looking at how we can do that and how can we train teachers and how can we go into schools and do talks by the age of 10 or 11 some research suggests that kids have already decided whether they want to study a stem subject when they're older whether they're going to be interested in science and technology and engineering or whether they don't see themselves in them and that's amazing so we need to be getting to people before they turn 10 and having these conversations and letting them see what kind of exciting stuff is out there so whether we can develop really engaging workshops that package into 40 minutes and either teachers can deliver or industry people can go into school and partner with them and deliver it, that's one potential option. But we also need role models. And there's that phrase that you can't be what you can't see. It makes it a lot harder to aspire to be something if you can't see anybody that looks like you doing it. And that's, again, a whole big piece around how do we encourage you know, a more diverse set of people in geoscience in the industry as well, because predominantly, you know, it's been quite white, middle-class and male. And that is starting to change. And actually the role and the scope of the roles within the industry is changing now as well. And we've got such a huge task ahead of us within geoscience over the next couple of decades, if we're going to be able to deliver the energy transition, you know, develop these built environments to cope with changing populations and all of that, how do we deliver it? Well, we need to have as much diverse thought in to tackle these challenges in the best possible way. So we need a diverse pipeline of people who want to come into the industry. So we really need to encourage role models. You know, was David Attenborough a geologist originally? Yep. Um, how do we, you know, how do we raise the profile of it? I, I actually don't know what all the answers are, but talking about it is definitely a good start. Charles Darwin as well, geologist, but. One thing you mentioned there, Lucy, so important is teaching the teachers to to get a, to get this message across to a wider number of people. Teaching the teachers, giving them just little nuggets, because as we've said, there's, there's a as decline in general knowledge across the UK, and it's not just the UK, but we're looking at just the UK in in teachers who are you know particularly maybe primary school teachers who um, they just don't get exposed to it at school and that then carries on. Uh, and it's like a chicken and egg situation. You need something to change to, to get um, more geoscience knowledge, even if it's very basic, just, just some of the, the key things and the key messages. And there, there was someone who was talking to me recently who mentioned um, that at school their, their kid had, had mentioned their teacher um, talked about mining and basically with a throwaway comment says, Oh yes, some you know mining was bad, and then kind of moved on. And that might be the only experience that or exposure they get to to the word mining that year. We don't know, but it's essentially just throwaway comments like that. And from the UN General Secret Secretary General at COP26 saying, you know, we can't mine ourselves, mine our way out of this this mess. And fair enough when he was talking specifically about coal mining. Uh, but it, it all gets tarred with the same brush, unfortunately. Um, so it's it's changing that that public narrative, and and to get into the teachers is is for me the fundamental thing we we need to try and try and achieve. Yeah, I would agree with that entirely. You know, um, STEM initiatives from industry and from universities getting into schools, meeting uh, kids, and and just showing them what's out there, because. With the best will in the world, until you're shown, you don't know the the the, the breadth and uh, places you can go with with a career in ground engineering of, of any kind of hue is huge. I mean, we've got people, for example, working in Antarctica, putting in piling for the new David Attenborough ship to be able to berth. You know, those are ground engineers who are there. I mean, how many people do you know that have worked in Antarctica? For example, you know, um, all over the all over the world, there are people doing interesting jobs uh, to do with ground engineering. Obviously, within the mining side of things, but just within uh, construction as well. So, uh, but people don't know these things. You never hear of it. You never see it. Touching on what Lucy said, if you can't see it, uh, you know, why why would you be interested in something? Because you don't know about it. Um, so, I, th I think really, 
universities and industry both need to get into schools a lot more um, and and you know showcase these things you know inspire the kids show them uh, uh, somebody in high vis measuring a pile beside a penguin you know let, let's just do stuff like that you know it's it's crazy stuff like that but it's happening we just don't know we, we just don't uh, tell people in, about it enough and I think that's a big part of it if people would be able to see and uh, hear some of the things that they could do by studying um, earth science or geology or, or these kind of engineering uh, or or you know ground engineering subjects uh, they could be out doing these things but they just don't know and that's half the problem also as well you know <clears throat> I guess people have a, an image in their head of geologists standing in a muddy field you know looking at a rock which, which we do um, and that's fun but not not for everyone uh, some people would like to sit in a nice shiny office in the middle of London or Glasgow or any of these kind of places and that is absolutely doable as well there are huge that's what the three of us are doing right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah there are huge multinational uh design engineering design houses with you know offices full of professionals designing uh, liaising with clients you know wearing suits if that's your thing you know all all of that is a is a possibility as well as high vis as well as holding a geological hammer it really is such a broad uh, base of opportunity that uh, we just i include myself and everyone else for that matter we just don't um shout about it enough and i think that's that's what it comes down to I'll, I'll, can i tell a little story from uh, just the other day that kind of highlights the issue um, so I, I arranged to do a STEM talk through the STEM ambassador website uh, to a local, very local, just 500 metres down the road from me here in Cardiff, uh, Sick Form College about careers. Um, so I rocked up there with my box of rocks and I've got these, um, it's a briefcase game where I've got some rocks and I've got some everyday items and the idea is gets them to talk about, you know, which one's which and how they relate. Anyway, so I get there set up. Um, I'm there with the careers, careers lady, and no one turns up. And you know that there's 350 kids at this sick form college, and I was told that at least some of them would be interested. <laughs> it turns out, no, either that or at 10 in the morning they're all asleep. I don't know, but anyway, I had a good chat with the careers lady, um, and. If nothing else came of it except for, for that highlighting some of the careers to the careers lady, and it's similar to teaching mm. the teachers, it's it's giving the knowledge to the people who are helping young people decide in their careers. That is really going to have a big impact. Um, and and she was fascinated by my rocks, so they've obviously missed out, to be honest. But but I thought it it did just show us the scale of the problem. And I don't blame the, the students, you know, when, when when they hear the word, I called it mining in the green revolution, you know, which uh, might have put people off. I thought it might pique people's interest, but I think that that's the issue is that the, the word mining really does at the moment conjure up certain images. You've, you've talked about those perception issues and, and what struck me is the... Um the influencers, so to speak, that, that have an impact, whether it's the teachers, the career advisors, or, you know, mainstream discussion around um, some of these issues. How do we tackle those perceptions so that we can kind of improve take up of these subjects? Can I, can I just jump straight in there that we need to have active debate and talk about the issues, put all the issues on the table. Uh, so we're not hiding behind any issues. We are absolutely saying these things have happened. There's been some major disasters. There's been some very bad practice that's gone on. However, there's also now a very different way of doing things. And here's some positive examples. And and at, but actually have that debate. I think the problem we've got to at the moment is that most of the stuff we see online um and maybe on the some of the major news outlets is is when you have a disaster which is you know because there's lots of humans being affected and maybe there's also fatalities um but you don't have the other side of the of the story as we 
talked to you about right at the beginning. So it's it's having, I think, people being more open to discussion in general. And I think it goes for the the mining companies themselves talking about mining, but I guess also relates to any kind of geoscience related um, area. Um, is the companies that are doing this work need to just be more open and and show what they're doing and be more honest and but also we need the other side to come to the table anyone that's opposing it and everyone anyone that's that's saying we can't do this we can't do that we need to have a proper public forum for this this debate rather than just mudslinging which never comes to anything so in my mind there'll be this this day or this event where we can get together and and have a real really good debate a healthy debate about how to do things properly and what's going right what's going wrong lucy obviously you're working for a uk mining company and in how do you think that might reopen the discussion about opportunities closer to home and and perceptions of the sector in 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 the uk so i think cornwall is probably slightly different to the rest of the uk and the reason for that is in cornwall there is so much mining heritage down here. We've got evidence of tin and copper extraction going back for you know, four or 5,000 years. And over the last few hundred years, copper and then tin have been extracted at globally significant levels. And we've got engine houses dotted around the coast. We've got piles of mining waste that are now environments where specific butterflies like to live and a triple SIs. And we've also got a really active China clay mining industry that's been going for nearly 300 years in Cornwall, still employs nearly a thousand people, I believe. And so mining is very much part of the local identity here in Cornwall. And South Crofty, the last tin mine, closed in 1998. They're looking to reopen it now and have got funding to dewater that mine. Because mining has still happened in what's a fairly recent past and there are a number of communities in the centre of Cornwall where when the mining industry closed for the final time 20-30 years ago there's not really been any industry to replace that apart from tourism and so people really see that when the mining industry was thriving there were a lot more jobs it was a lot more of an affluent area you know Cornwall is one of the most economically deprived regions within the EU um, which is why we used to get a lot of a lot of funding from the EU before Brexit and so not something to take for granted but I think people potentially have a better understanding of what mineral extraction entails here and also the benefits it can provide to communities through job creation and things like that so I think the environment for restarting mining is potentially quite different in Cornwall as it might be in other parts of the world and what we're looking to do at Cornish Lithium is extract lithium from geothermal waters and we're also looking to extract lithium from the granite itself and they're two very different projects I'll go into them in a bit detail very quickly so looking to extract lithium from geothermal waters is just completely different to how you might picture a mine what it involves is putting boreholes in so drilling from the surface down to somewhere between one and a half and two kilometers depth, where we'll intercept geothermal waters that are circulating naturally within permeable fault systems, pump them up to the surface. And then we're looking to use the type of technology that comes under the umbrella of direct lithium extraction technologies. And what these technologies allow you to do is just remove the lithium ions from the water. So your lithium is dissolved in the water as lithium chloride. You, you can recover just the lithium ions from that water. So it's either highly selective membranes, quite often it's an ion exchange mechanism. But if you're just removing your lithium ions from the water, then actually that's highly efficient. What we then look to do is probably re-inject that lithium depleted water back down a disposal borehole so that it goes back into the geological system. That's not what people think of when they think of mining. It's fairly low, well, it is very low impact. It's got a very small footprint. And actually, if we're pumping warm geothermal water surface, you know, from one and a half, two kilometers depth, they might be anywhere from 45 up to 70, 80 degrees Celsius. We can use that heat energy to decarbonize local businesses that use heat. So, for example, we're looking to partner with a local creamery that uses heat in its processes to make clotted cream. So hopefully we'll have a lot more scones. But you know, if we can partner with local industry or district heating schemes for houses or somebody who's going to be able to use that heat, you know, it's a renewable heat being pumped to the surface. And that's quite neat. And so the public acceptance of that, once people understand what it is, 
so far has been, you know, people are really supportive of it. They can see that it's, it's low impact. There's very little negatives associated with those projects. And then where we're looking to extract lithium from the granite rock itself, it's quarrying. So it is a, you know, more of a footprint, more of an immediate impact. But actually, we're looking to repurpose an old China clay mine. That's, so it's already an existing open pit. We just want to repurpose it and extract some more of the rock and now extract lithium as the main product. So there's potential that we can use a lot of the existing China clay infrastructure in the area. Perhaps we're looking to put our processing site on an old industrial site things like that. So we're trying to develop the projects in the best possible way, minimising our impact as far as possible. And so far, the kind of public acceptance and support for what we're doing has been really strong. Obviously, that's not something we take for granted. And our approach is very much we want to be open and transparent with the local communities where we're working about what we're looking to do and how we'll do it. Uh, element of what you said there, Lucy, was interesting because, of course, a lot of the towns and cities all across the UK uh, are based where coal mining was done uh, historically, and uh, most of which, if not all, have, are now discontinued. However, uh, there are trials at the moment with um, ground engineers um, to see about using the uh, water within the mines, which is warm, as a source of heating. Um, so boreholes are being sunk in places like Glasgow and Cheshire and other places to do uh, trials for exactly that. Can this water be used, which is which is warmed <clears throat> without input from us, if you like, uh, at depth, brought to the surface and used to heat, you know, social housing and uh, or businesses or whatever. So yeah, that's definitely something really, uh, really interesting because of course the the abandoned mines are predominantly where people live now, as I say, it's underneath the, the towns and cities across the country. So uh, that would be really good if, if that was able to be used. Who would have thought uh, a few years ago that, that uh, abandoned coal mines would have been would have been brought back into use for that purpose. So, yeah. Yeah, and Again, places just, like uh, South Wales will be, you know, have exactly. been deprived since the yep. since the decline of the mining industry can have a, a, a rebirth and a new industry, but using similar kind of um, skill sets as we talked about at the beginning uh, but in a completely different context so thank you that's great some really exciting opportunities there um, so to close um, it'd be really great to know I think I've got the gist of it but um, but in your own words about why you love what you do and um, why you think others should should get involved I guess what I love about being a ground engineer is the highly transferable skills that you gain and that I get to play a key part in creating sustainable environments that enhance people's lives uh, and build resilience to you know, national infrastructure in the face of climate change. Most of which, as I said earlier, people won't even know about. I have cuddled a chimp. I have eaten horse intestines. I have um, been 1,500 metres underground. Um, I've been to the rainforest. I've been to the desert. Basically, I've seen a lot of things. Uh, and all of that is because of this job, essentially, you know, get, getting into into geoscience and not just mining, but, you know, uh, water. If you're in a hydrogeologist, for example, um, that's only going to become even more important throughout the world when we, we start running, running low on, on groundwater. Um, getting to see some of the world's most amazing places. Um, the thing I appreciate most is I, by accident, not design, ended up in the mining industry. And a bit like Ian said, I very rarely look at rocks now. And if I do, it's not my core job. But actually, through studying earth sciences and then doing my master's in mining geology, I've ended up within the mining industry. And critical minerals are so important to our future and I suppose for me I really kind of buy into that big picture view and I think that geoscience was just a gateway to you know having a career in something that I really believe in and I, whereas my personal view is you're so much more likely to have a positive impact and bring about change from within these industries that are perhaps considered you know dirty polluting but are so vital to everything that we're doing in building these low carbon technologies. So I suppose for me, 
geology, geoscience has been a gateway into a career that I find really rewarding. And absolutely, you get to meet so many different people with different skill sets and from different backgrounds. And there is the opportunity to travel all around the world if you want to. I don't think there's a career out there that's perhaps more global than how geology can take you. information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using at iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify